We've been working through the book of Haggai over the last couple of weeks. It's a little prophet nestled away in the Old Testament. Um, and we spent the last couple of weeks looking at the first chapter and a half. So today we're halfway through chapter 2. So let's read together from Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. Beginning of verse 10. This is God's word. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the month, since, that, since the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but... From this day on, I will bless you. And we'll leave the reading of God's Word there for a few moments. Uh, the background story, if you, if you haven't uh, been with us over the last few weeks looking at the book of Haggai, is that the people of God, known as Judah, were in exile for about 40 or 50 years in, in a far-off land called Babylon. Monday, sort of Iran and Iraq, that district... They've been there for 40, 50 years because of their unfaithfulness to God, their previous generation, so God gave them over to their enemy. And so they're there for 40 or 50 years, but things changed hands. They went from the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire. And under the Persians, displaced people groups were allowed to go back home. And so that's what we see here in the book of Haggai. Uh, the people of Judah have served their time, if you like, and they're allowed to go back to Jerusalem to start building the temple. And we saw that in the first couple of talks in this series. Uh, they, they, they started to work and then stopped because of a number of pressures internally and externally. And so the book of Haggai is God's prophet to God's people to stir them back to work. And so we saw in the first week, one of the reasons they had stopped working on the temple, their initial project, was because of personal preference. They had been prioritizing themselves and their own comfort over God and his temple. Then last week we saw another reason why the work was threatened and, and, and may have stopped, if God hadn't said anything that is, is comparisons that crush. The people were comparing the good old days with what they saw before them. Their efforts now didn't really match up to how good it was back in the day. And so we saw that last week and the, the, the trouble with comparison that we still do today as people and as churches. And this week... God, again, through the prophet Haggai, addresses a third threat to the work 
of building the temple. And that threat is this. Uncleanness that undermines. The word unclean has come up a few times in that passage. The threat to the work, uncleanness that undermines. On the 15th of April 2013, two homemade bombs exploded on the finishing line of the marathon in Boston. Three people were killed instantly, hundreds of others injured. Following a gunfight and a manhunt, one of the survivors who committed this offence against the people of Boston was caught and was taken to court and was charged with terrorism and all sorts of other offences and was found guilty and was placed on death row, where he still is to this day. But yet when you hear the story of why he and his brother did what they did in hurting these people in Boston, they were motivated by a particular form of Islam. But the point is they thought they were doing the right thing. They were so full of passion and zeal for what they thought was right. And yet they caused so much hurt and harm. Even when their mother was questioned by one reporter, she said this, and this is a quote, I am 100% sure that my two sons were set up. They are completely innocent. But as the story goes on, it seems to be that the evidence against them was so high that the jury convicts them. But the point with this is that we can be so convinced that our lives are good and that we are doing the right thing and that it is acceptable somehow, whether we believe in God or not. We all want to know that what we are doing on earth is counting for something somewhere along the line. But this passage that we're just about to consider in a, few, in a bit more detail goes to show that we can be working away, we can be working really hard, doing what we think is right, and yet we can be blind to the reality that God sees. And so as we will see as, as we go on, we need a revelation from God through his Holy Spirit to come and meet us in our place of greatest needs. So what does the Bible teach us? Well, we can think of the, the teaching in this passage under two headings. Number one, I'm going to say, and hopefully show from the Bible, that unholy people do unholy work. That's number one. And the second thing this passage teaches us is that God is determined to bless his people and their work. So unholy people doing unholy work, but God is determined to bless his people and their work. So let's think of the first piece. First of all, from verse 10, really through to verse 17. There is a problem going on that God is aware of, but it seems that the people are not. They're working away, they're doing their best, but they haven't connected the dots. We saw that back in week one haven't connected the dots. They haven't made a proper, clear assessment of the way things are, and they've come to wrong conclusions. And so, through the prophet, God comes to the people and speaks and gives them kind of an, an analogy from the law code in verses 12 and 13. Haggai goes to the priests, those who are experts in the law, and he says this in verse 12. If someone carries a holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches his, with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind, does it become holy? And the priest answered, no. The point here is that holiness doesn't travel. We, we, we get the, the idea from the ceremonial law that someone, a regular person, is carrying 
food that's been consecrated to God, to be given to God as a sacrifice, a thanksgiving offering or something like that, and he or she is carrying it around and, you know, touches something else as they're carrying it, you know, food, wine, whatever, does that thing that they touch with this consecrated bread or food or whatever become holy? And the priest says, no. And the point is, holiness doesn't transfer. Often when we think of the term holy, by the way, we, I don't know about you, but I, I, I think of, 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 of wonderful, ornate churches with incense and a real sense of, of quiet and a somber mood and holiness and, you know, beautiful architecture. That's what I think of when I think of the word holy. But the, the Bible's understanding of the word holy is something or someone that is given to God, consecrated to him, set aside for God. That's what holy means. It is opposite to something that's common or something that's everyday. Something that's holy is given to God, specially reserved for him. And what we're seeing here is that holiness doesn't transfer. You can't just make something holy by touching it or wiping it or whatever it is. We'll come back to that in a second. The second point the Haggai gets to is in verse 13. Okay, so we know that holiness doesn't transfer, but if someone who's unclean by touching a dead body touches any of these food things, wine or bread or whatever, do they become unclean? And the priest answered and said, yes, it does become unclean. So whilst holiness doesn't transfer, uncleanness is contagious. Uncleanness is contagious. It doesn't work the opposite to holiness. Before God, you see, holiness, how holy we are, how set apart, how consecrated we are, isn't measured on a set of scales. You know, good things here, bad things here. If we do good things, then we're holy. If we do bad things, then we're unholy. That's not how it works. According to the Bible here and many other places, uncleanness, whether through touching a dead body in a ceremonial way or other ways that we'll see in a minute, uncleanness carries so much more weight if we put it in the scales. We can have a lot of goodness built up on the positive side of the scales, but one tiny microscopic piece of uncleanness and suddenly the scales tip in the sight of God. Even a microscopic piece of unholiness makes everything unclean. It takes one piece of bacteria to make the whole body infected. It takes one piece of yeast to raise the whole batch of dough. Holiness doesn't transfer, uncleanness is contagious. And that that gives us, even before we get into what that's all about, it gives us some really good practical teaching for us as people. Holiness doesn't transfer and the same is said today. We are not made holy by passive transfer. We cannot be touched by holy things and become holy in God's eyes. We can't become holy because we attend a particular church or do particular religious things or because we are a member of the right family. That kind of stuff doesn't make us holy. Holiness doesn't transfer. But uncleanness is contagious. Uncleanness, unrighteousness, any actions in any part of our lives travels to the whole of us. There might be unholiness in one part of our lives. And yet that has an effect on the rest of us. We can't contain it. We can't keep it to one side. We'll we'll see more of this as we go along. 
So anyway, uh, Haggai has been speaking to the, the priests, and then he says uh, the application. This is the point he gets to in verse 14. Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. What they offer there is unclean. What's he saying? He's saying that an unholy people does unholy work, do unholy work. Whatever they're doing, they're working away, but it is not pleasing to God. It is not clean in his sight. It's not holy in his sight. Which might come as a bit of a surprise, particularly if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, because God has told them to get back to work and they have obeyed him and they've got back to work. But yet their work is not acceptable in his sight because they're unclean. So why, why are they unclean? What, what, what have they done or not done to get to this place? Well, we saw on the first week of Haggai and, and back in chapter one, uh, people are unclean, they're unholy because they were personalizing their own preferences. We saw that instead of building the house of God, they were preferring their own houses. So one of the ways that we're made unholy is by individual choices that we make that go against the will of God for our lives. But that's not it. That's not the only reason why the people were offering unholy things here. Together as a people, not only as individuals, but as a whole group of people. They are unholy. Their culture has been defiled somehow or other. We saw last week that there was a spirit of comparison within the community of the people. They are considered as a whole. And the same thing can happen for us today, whether it's churches or institutions of some kind or other. They can be, as a whole, unholy, unrighteous. Individually, corporately, they're unrighteous. And thirdly, generationally, the sins of their fathers, having an effect on later generations. As I said at the start, the reason the people were in exile were because of the unfaithfulness of their forefathers. And so that gets passed down to the children and their children and their children. And so we're left in this situation in Haggai chapter 2 where God says to his people, look, what you're doing, you're being frustrated. Uh, You're doing this work and yet it's coming to nothing. And so what does God say? Well, he says, uh, there's this phrase that comes up a couple of times uh, in verse 15, verse 18, he says, stop and think. In other words, consider. Think about what you're doing. It's not going well. It's not acceptable to me. Think about what you're doing. And then he says in verse uh, 15, before stone was placed upon stone, how did you fare? When you came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When you came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck you with all the products of your toil, with blight and with mildew and with hail. God is saying to them, stop, look, consider what is going on. I'm reminding you of the situation so that I can, I can win you back to myself. It seems to be that the people, as we were thinking a few moments ago, haven't connected the dots. They haven't come to the right conclusions about what was going on. And the same can be said of us. We can often be blind to our status before God unless he opens our eyes to the reality of who we are and what we've done. 
unless God speaks to us in clarity by his Holy Spirit, we could end up doing the same thing. As individuals or as a church, our work can be frustrated. Our productivity can be low. We can always be pushing, trying to move forward, but have little to show for it. Always working hard, but nothing comes back. Ultimately, because what we're doing is unacceptable to God. Unholy people do unholy work. But the good news is, as we shall see, that is not the end. Because God wants us to become clean. So that brings us to the second point of the scripture. God is determined to bless his people and their work. Because this is good news that we're about to see. This marks a turning point in how God relates to his people. He says in verse 15 and verse 17, sorry, 18, these two phrases that are identical, consider from this day onward, from this day onward, God is saying to his people, you have been frustrated. Your offerings, your work have been unholy, unclean before me. Uncleanness is contagious. But consider from this day forward, mark this date in your calendar, says God. And he makes this monumental statement. He says, a line is being drawn in the sand, verse 19, from this day on, I will bless you. In verse 10, it uh, gives us a rough time uh, frame. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, this is about 520 BC. By this time of the year, the harvest has already been, uh, sorry, the seeds have already been sown. We're coming into winter now. And so we don't know, the, the Israelites, sorry, the, the people of Judah don't know what kind of harvest they're going to have in six or nine months time uh, when the seasons change. The seeds have been sown and yet, judging by past evidence, it's going to be a disappointment this year on as well. But God says to his people, no, 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 not now, not this time. Now I'm going to bless you from this moment forward. They were living and working under the curse for their uncleanness, whether it's individual uncleanness because of things they've done against God, whether it's their corporate uncleanness because of the kind of people that they are as a whole, whether it's their generational uncleanness because of the sins of the fathers. They've been working under a curse, but now, says God, the curse will be lifted. You will be made right with God. You'll be made to be fruitful. I'm going to make you at peace. I'm going to restore you. I will bless you, says God in verse 19. But to be honest, this sets up a bit of a philosophical problem for us, doesn't it? Because we've got unholy people doing unholy work. But on the other hand, in verse 19, we've got God saying, I'm going to bless you. So we've got to ask ourselves, how can they both be true? How is it possible that the work done by an unclean group of people can be blessed anyway? Surely that's not how God works. And how we respond to this sort of philosophical conundrum that gets set up in the book of Haggai will reveal a lot about us and about our relationship to God and how we think of God. Typically, we can respond in one of two ways. Religious people can say, yes, God is holy, and he, 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 he justly gives punishment for disobedience. And so the religious person will respond to that and say, 
The solution is to work. It's just to avoid sin, do the best you can before God. It's to gain blessing. You can even go and join a local church and do Christian ministries so that God will bless you for your work. That's how the religious people person would respond. But yet they underestimate that holiness does not transfer. And the problem with the religious response is that you end up with people who are just joyless, who are determined, just getting through the work, trying to avoid sin or trying to gain blessing from God, but there's no passion in it. There's no joy in it. Ultimately, they're just looking after themselves. They're trying to get away with something or trying to work for something that they're going to receive uh, and be blessed by God. That's how the religious person will respond to how a God will bless unclean people. Ultimately, it's all about self-preservation. But a secular person may respond slightly differently. A secular person or an irreligious person will say, God, God probably doesn't exist. But if he does, he'll be a God of love. He's a good God probably, and so he'll be okay with me and the way I live. The secular person will say that, most likely. And so the secular person will live in response to this um, with no burdens, so they feel, that no religious commitments. They will live in a way that feels good and serves their own purposes, doing what's right in their own eyes. God won't mind if he does exist. But the problem with the secular response is that it underestimates that uncleanness is contagious. A small amount of unrighteousness or unholy living affects the whole person disproportionately. And so the secular response, the irreligious response, will be ultimately also self-focused, just looking out for oneself, trying to live for what gives me pleasure. But the Bible gives us a third way as well. It gives us a way to hold in tension the fact that God is holy and that we are unclean. The Bible teaches that we are totally unholy and yet we can be richly blessed at the same time. Isaiah chapter 64 reminds us that even our best works, our finest works, are like filthy rags in God's sight in and of themselves. But according to the faith of the Bible, we can be totally defiled, totally unclean in the eyes of God, and yet we can be completely cleansed because of Jesus. Because of our uncleanness or or whatever way you want to call it, our, our unholiness, whether it's individual choices we've made against God's will, whether it's corporately, whether it's generationally, we are under a God's curse. But instead, we can be richly blessed by Jesus. And the way that works is through the gospel. Because in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus, Jesus, we are told in the Bible, willingly took our curse upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What, it, what he's saying is this, at the cross, at, at the cross that Jesus died upon, he took the full curse and the, the penalty of our sin upon himself and he paid for it. 
Not only did he remove the curse from us in his body on the cross, but he removed our filth and our defilement and our unholiness by sacrificing himself for us. And as a result, the gospel teaches, God declares you righteous, or the fancy word is justified, that is worthy in his sight because of what Christ did for you. God points to the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday and says, from this day onwards, I will bless you. In the gospel, in the cross of Christ, God reveals his character, his his loving, gracious character towards us. He loves the unlovable and he shows that through the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. He is a God who is rich in mercy. And when we trust in Christ's work, when we, when we trust that it applies to us, then at that moment, the curse is lifted, the, the uncleanness is removed. At that moment, we are completely clean and we are richly blessed. And it's through the gospel that unholy people can be blessed and blessed by God. And so, of course, as we come into land, that has implications for us by the way that we view our work, both in the working world out there, our nine-to-five jobs, if you're lucky enough to have one, um, in the working world, at home, as part of a local church, it, it, it impacts every area of life. Because when we understand the good news of the gospel, how we are made righteous, we are made holy, we are blessed because of the work of Christ on the cross, when we understand that, then we are free to serve out of love for God. We're not doing service of acts of kindness or or love for one another uh, because of a fear of punishment or to gain some blessing from God. We're doing it out of response to what God has done for us in Christ. And so the more we understand the good news of the gospel, we are free to serve. We are free to give. We are free to, to, to welcome one another. We are free to sacrifice our time and our lives for each other. We must as a church, rediscover this gospel centrality. We must work out of a sense of our justification before God, out of a knowledge about how blessed we are in Christ Jesus. I was reading the uh, journals of an 18th century preacher by the name of George Whitfield a couple of years ago. And one of the things that became clear to me was that Whitfield who saw many thousands of people converted to Christ, had at the centre of his message this idea of the justification of God, how God declares holy people who are unholy. That was part of his message uh, over many years of his ministry. And he saw many thousands of conversions of people, a whole wave of people across England and Wales particularly, and and North America, giving their lives to Jesus Christ because they realized that God makes unholy people holy through the work of Christ. All revivals have gospel rediscovery at their center, and so is the church, to the extent that we allow the gospel to shape us and who we are and how we interact with each other is the extent that we will radiate him and serve him freely so that many will hear and receive the same freedom that we see in the gospel.